just saying the Bible stands, and it will forever. And then in the prayer, we were reminded of this verse, and we can turn to it. Uh, the verse is in Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I heard a quote this past week, or a statistic really, it's not a quote, a statistic that by the second week of February, more than 85% of people fail at their New Year's resolutions. <laughs> I said, well, on one hand, that puts me with the majority. But then if you don't make New Year's resolutions, then you can't fail at them. So that's the other way to look at it. But to think that so many people can't even hold true to their word for more than a month or a month and a half, 12 weeks, 10 weeks, whatever it is, that in such a short time that we go back on what we had resolved to do. And what a comfort to know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that the word that he's given, as we've had it brought before us in Sunday school, the inspired word of God that he's given will never change. And he will never go back on it. That's his promise, and that's based upon who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. I've been studying in the book of Hebrews, and so it's interesting that the Spirit of God has brought us here. Um, chapter 13, obviously, is at the end of the book of Hebrews, and verse 8 serves to be a reminder of what we've had um, revealed to us throughout the whole book of Hebrews and that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is a great statement, but it's even more powerful when you understand who Jesus Christ is and what he means to each one of us. And based upon that knowledge of who he is and that understanding, when we say that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, it means so much more to us. So we're going to go back two chapters, three chapters, actually. We're going to go back to chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, it begins with Jesus Christ being brought before us as the exact representation, that exact imprint of who God is, the radiance of God, right? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, he says that long ago at many times God spoke to us, by, to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by the Son. In verse 3, he says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus Christ is, and that's what the book of Hebrews brings us to. And what I want to get to is in chapter 10, and we're going to have to speed read this chapter because it's 39 verses. And my goal isn't to go too in-depth, but I want to bring out a couple points that have really stuck with me this week. And they really go hand-in-hand hand with what we've just heard, that God's Word is inspired, that it will endure the test of time, and that it is based upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and that he will never change, therefore his word will never change. Okay, so that's, that's how we're going to approach chapter 10. When we, for context, when we read Hebrews, it's talking about the supremacy of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, comparing him to all the systems of the Old Testament and how Christ was supreme and better than and superior to all those systems, right? To the sacrifices, to the Levitical system, to the priesthood, to Moses, to the prophets. Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. And that's what we've been brought into. Christ is better. In Hebrews chapter 9, he talks about the sacrifice of Christ. And he talks about the need 
of the sacrifice of Christ in Hebrews chapter 9. Because, read um, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we need the sacrifice of Christ. And that's what Hebrews chapter 9 brings us to. Hebrews chapter 10, it, it puts before us the character of the sacrifice. The character of the sacrifice. And let me tell you, there is a very interesting, we, we talk about this giving up on New Year's resolutions and, and not following through, and then we contrast it to the Word of God that will endure for all generations, and we contrast that to, or we, we, we put that in line with the Lord Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a verse at the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews that says, you need endurance. You need endurance. We need to be able to withstand, to have the ability to endure. But we can't get to that point, and, and the, the, the writer doesn't bring us to that point without laying the foundation of Jesus Christ before us. And so we're going to arrive at that conclusion, but we're going to go through how the writer lays it out for us. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll begin at verse 1. And he begins by contrasting it, as the whole book of Hebrews does, he contrasts it to the Old Testament and to the law. He says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And the way that we're going to read through this is I'm just going to pause on some key words and help us to understand those, and by doing so, help us to appreciate the, po the, the portion that's here and get us to our conclusion at the end of the chapter. The first word that we're going to pause on is the word shadow. For the law, that's, that's all of the, the, the laws that were given by God and all the institutions that man had brought in um, to try to adhere to God's law. For the law is but only a shadow of the good things to come. The word shadow here, it means a very pale, pale shadow or an outline. And that's all it was. That's all that the law was. It was a very pale outline or a very, um, uh, a very pale shadow of the good things to come. And it was not the true form. There was no substance. When you, when you think of a shadow, it's two-dimensional. There is no substance to a shadow. And that's what the law was in the Old Testament. There was no substance to it. It was simply an outline of, of God's righteous standard is what it was. A shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And so we see that the shadow, it falls short of, of what we have in Christ. Because it says that it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Understand where it says it can never, and down in verse 4, it says it is impossible. The law, it falls short of what God desired. God desired to bring men into a relationship with him and to justify men in his presence, and the law falls short of that. It can never, by these sacrifices, make perfect those who draw near. The second word or phrase in this verse is that we're going to that we're going to pause on is that phrase make perfect make perfect what does that mean in the book of hebrews and we'll we'll understand it contextually in the book of hebrews if you go back to chapter 7 this is where we get our definition for make perfect in the book of hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11 
He says, now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And then again in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, the better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So how do we, or what definition do we come up with through these verses for the phrase make perfect? And I would submit that the definition that we have here in these in chapter seven is that to be made perfect is to be able to enter the presence of God. It's to be able to draw near to the presence of God. To be made perfect, according to Hebrews seven and verse 19, it says, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the law could not make us perfect. A better hope has been introduced that makes us perfect, that allows us to draw into the presence of God. Make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2 says, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since because these worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins. This word consciousness, I believe the, the correct translation or the actual in the Greek, it doesn't mean consciousness like knowing that it's there. How we understand consciousness, it actually means the conscience of sin. Having the idea of dealing with the guilt of sin that is there. Not the knowledge of sin, not, not the recognition of sin, but the guilt that sin has. The consciousness of sin. When I think of this, it says in, in verse 3 goes right along with us, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. You think of, of a very, very low level example would be a bottle of ibuprofen in your cabinet or painkiller, whatever, whatever you use. Some people use ibuprofen, um, Excedrin, Advil, Tylenol. The painkiller in the cabinet, it doesn't take away the ailment. It covers up the pain, the symptom, for a while, but then it wears off, and you have to take more. The painkiller in your cabinet does not remind you that you are pain-free. The only time you see it is when you have pain. These sacrifices did not remove the guilt. They did not remove the pain of sin. They served as a reminder year by year. Every time, the, and, and day by day even, every time the, the people would see a sacrifice, they would see the blood. So many sacrifices were on the altar that the brook Kidron, which lies outside of Jerusalem, often flowed red because of all the blood that would come down the hill. That's how much blood was offered. And we have that song, I believe it's 143 in the spiritual songbook, not all the blood of bulls and goats on Jewish altars slain, right? There were millions upon millions of sacrifices that were slain on these altars. And all they did was serve as a reminder of sin. But they could never take away the guilt, the consciousness of sin. That's what we have in verse 2 and 3. For it is impossible, in verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And here we have this phrase, impossible, and it reminds us of what we had in, in verse 1. Um, they, it cannot make perfect those who draw near. The idea that the law and the sacrifices, they fall short of the full intention. Reason being, this word impossible, it doesn't mean, and maybe I misspoke, it does not mean that they actually failed for what they were intended for. It means that they were not designed 
for that use. They were not designed to make people perfect in the sight of God. They were designed to serve as a reminder of sin and to cover sin for a season until this shadow could be removed and what was perfect could come in its place. And that which was perfect was Christ. And so that's why they were, that's why they fell short. That's why it was impossible because that was not what they were intended for. Christ or God had a much we can say better sacrifice and much more perfect, a more perfect sacrifice intended to take away sin forever. And that's where he leads us to in verse five. He says, consequently, because these sacrifices, they, they, it was impossible for them to take away sin. Because they were simply an outline, a shadow of things to come. That's what their character was. And now he contrasts that with the character of Christ. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. And we had this verse in, in 1 Samuel where um, Samuel is speaking, and we know Saul, he offered up sacrifices, and, and Samuel says, it is better to obey than to sacrifice, right? And here we get the same idea. That sacrifices and offerings, that it wasn't, this, it wasn't the offering that pleased God. But it was, it was the way in which they would come to him and offer these sacrifices. It was the condition of their heart that was pleasing to God. The sacrifices, they, didn't, they did not bring him pleasure. But in contrast to these sacrifices that did not bring God pleasure, the Lord Jesus could say that a body you have prepared for me. We think of the body, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he was here on the earth, the father could rip open the heavens and he could declare, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That all the, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, millions upon millions, would not please God. But in the body that he had prepared for the Lord Jesus, he could say, I am well pleased with my beloved son. And he says that in verse 7. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And here's the thing. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He, he, he removes the, the offerings and that imperfect system to establish something that is perfect. He removes something that, that could not make us perfect and allow us to draw near to God. He removes that and he brings in something that allows us to come into the very presence of God. That allows us to be made perfect. That allows us to be justified in the, in the very eyes of a holy God. So he removes, he does away with the first. He does away with it in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In verse 7, the Lord Jesus could say, Behold, I have come to do your will, O my God. And in verse 10, he says, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering. Whose will is it? It's the will of the Father. It's the will of the Father. When the Lord Jesus was a boy and his parents lost him and they found him and he was in the temple. And he says, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Doing my father's will? 
is what he was telling them. And last week in, in the ministry meeting, we had that, that Abraham would send his servant to go get a bride for his son Isaac and the, and the um, application that that's the, the father sending the Holy Spirit to procure a bride for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the father's will that we are sanctified. That's what we get in verse 10. It's the father's will that we are sanctified. And so it was the father's will that he would send his son and prepare a body for his son to come here. It's the Father's will that initiates all of this. And so that we could say is the, the perfection of the sacrifice in verses 1 to 10. How these Old Testament sacrifices were imperfect compared to the perfection of Christ's sacrifice. But now what we get in verse 11 and as we read on down to verse 18 is we get the permanence of the sacrifice because every priest, these are the Old Testament priests, stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. They can never take away sin. Because they were imperfect, they had to repeat the sacrifice again and again, day after day, year after year. When Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice. For sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the permanence of the work of Christ. That's the foundation upon which we stand. That's the foundation that the Bible is based upon, that Jesus Christ has taken away sins, that he was the Son of God that came here, that, that he died on the cross, took away our sins, and that He, the Father was so well pleased that he raised him up and seated him at his right hand. That's the foundation of our faith, right there. That the Bible will stand the test of time and, and forever because it's based upon someone who never changes. And Jesus Christ is, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he's the same yesterday, today and forever, then his work is the same yesterday, today and forever. So unlike the sacrifices of old that would fall away, that would lose their, their effectiveness, even after a few hours, the work of Christ is, is permanent. It's effective for all eternity. When Christ had offered for a single time, or for, a single for all time, a single sacrifice, for sins he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So not only is there a completed work, but there's a complete victory, and that is he's, he's waiting for that victory. When his enemies will be made his footstool. What a place of power he has. But we find ourselves right in between verse 12, the sacrifice that Christ offered, and verse 13, that final victory. And if you could just draw a dash in between those two verses, that's, that's the present age right there. That's where we find ourselves in between those two verses. We'll, we'll move on. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Maybe we need to go back and read verse 1. It says that all these sacrifices that are continually offered every year cannot make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Nothing else could bring us close to God. 
but Christ has perfected. He has brought us in, made us fit, justified, made us fit for the very presence of God. Not only has the veil been torn, God did that. God toward the veil, God opened the way, and Christ prepared us. Perfected for all time. Not just for today, not just for Sundays, not just for this week, not just while I'm behaving myself, but for all time, the work of Christ has perfected me to be draw, drawn near to God, to be fit for God's presence for all time. That means from the moment that I believe in the work of Christ, it is sufficient for me to come into God's presence, and it will be for all eternity. There is security in the work of Christ. Not only is there satisfaction in the work of Christ, but there's security in the work of Christ. He is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness. So not only has the Son done a work, not only has God done a work in, in the opening the, the way and Christ preparing us for his, God's presence, but the Holy Spirit bears witness to this as he always does. For after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. That's his word. That's his revelation. That I'm going to give them a word and put it on their hearts and write it on their minds. These are my people, he says. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And this takes us all the way back to chapter 9 where he said that in order for there to be forgiveness of sin, there had to be blood that was shed, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So now we have blood that's been shed. We have forgiveness of sins. And what he says now is that if there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer a need for an offering of sin. And what does that prove? That proves that the work of Christ is sufficient and is the final work. There is nothing that needs to be added to it. God is so pleased with the work of Christ that he does not require another sacrifice. His holy wrath has been vindicated. His righteousness has been vindicated. His wrath has been appeased because of the work of Christ. Forgiveness of sins is based upon the work of Christ. Forgiveness of sins is based upon the blood that was shed. And since his blood was holy, forgiveness of sins is, is a done deal. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Because sins have been forgiven, there's no longer a need for another offering. What a, what a foundation that we have based upon the work of Christ here in these verses. And then we get to this section, verses 19 to the end, verse 38, 39. How do we respond? How do we respond? He says, therefore, brethren, based upon, based upon all of this, based upon the fact that, that the, the sacrifices were a shadow, they were an outline in crisis, the perfect, the perfect exact imprint of, of who God is and his work is so perfect and he's, he's done away with sin forever and he's provided forgiveness of sins in a way into God's presence and God is so pleased with his sacrifice How do we respond to this? He says, therefore, brothers, brethren, uh, the word there is, is, is company, it's a family, um, 
Um, it comes from the same Greek word that we get the word um, Philadelphia from. It has the idea of brotherly in a, in a sense of a family. Since we have confidence, that word confidence means boldness. Since we have boldness to enter the holy places, what gives us the confidence to enter the holy places? It's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that gave us forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins that cleansed us for all eternity, the work of Christ that is permanent. Based on that work, we have confidence, we have boldness to enter into the holy places. Remember, the holy places in the, in the Old Testament, in the, in the tabernacle, it was only once a year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest could enter into the holy places. And for some reason, if he wasn't right before God, or if the prayer he uttered wasn't pleasing to God, he would fall dead in the holy presence of God. And they tied a rope to his ankle according to Jewish tradition. So if he did happen to die and the bell that was on his garment stopped ringing, they could pull him out. That's how severe the holiness of God is. And the holiness of God has not changed one bit. But God has opened the way and those who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and are washed in his blood are made fit, are perfected to walk into the holiness of God, to the holy places. It's an amazing, amazing foundation upon which we stand. And he says, therefore, since this is what's been done for us, he says, let's have boldness. My first response would be, to walk in with a sense of trepidation and fear. Knowing what the holiness of God is. But he says let's have confidence. And the only way you have confidence is if you fully trust and fully lean into the work of Christ. Let's have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood or because of the blood or on the merit of the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. First Peter reminds us that in his body, he bore our sins through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, not only is he the sacrifice, but he is the one who offered the sacrifice. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I love that phrase, draw near, draw near. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 2, it talks about the people of Israel. And it says that when the presence of God came down, that the people of Israel, they had to stand at a distance. Exodus 24 and verse 2. There was such a distance because the, the system was imperfect. The system was to remind them of sin and to bring guilt, to point out where they had fallen short. The work of Christ is here to perfect us, to make us fit for God's presence. And so he says, let us draw near, get rid of the distance, enter into his presence. Come near unto him with a true heart. A true heart, that goes back to the conscience. There is no guilt. Romans 8 would remind us there's now no condemnation in Christ or for those who are in Christ. We have a true heart. We have a pure heart. Our standing before God is, is righteous because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and full assurance of faith. We have no need to doubt with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And there's much that we can say. Our hearts, 
speaks of our spiritual condition, sprinkled clean with blood from an evil conscience. That's the blood of Christ, and he cleanses us. There's now no condemnation. Our bodies, that speaks of our physical, it speaks of our humanity, it speaks of the things that we do with our hands and feet and head and everything else. And he says, you wash this with pure water. The water in Scripture always speaks of the Word. And so you have the work of Christ and you have the Word of Christ working together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold on to it. Hold fast. Hold um, um, securely. Hold fast the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? Can't hold on to something we don't, if we don't know what it is. The confession of our hope is that Jesus Christ has prepared a way for us to enter into God's presence. And when we enter into God's presence, you, you think of the priest who would walk in and, and he, he hoped to God that he would not die. He hoped that his standing was right before God. We hold fast to the confession that God is pleased with the work of Christ and that he has for all eternity satisfied God's righteous standard. And we hold on to that hope. That when we enter into God's presence, it's not because of something we've done. It's because of the work of Christ. That's our confession. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That's why every time we come into God's presence, we come in on the, on the merit and on the work of Christ. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the assembling of, uh, or to meeting together as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the, this is the call to action in this chapter. Since we have this confidence to enter in, the confidence, the hope, the assurance, everything that he's just laid out, the confession, all of this is based upon the work of Christ, the the permanence of the work, the perfection of the work. He goes on to say in, in verse 26 to verse 31, and, and we won't get into these verses, but because this, the, there's been a sacrifice for sins, sin ought to be done away with. Just because the sacrifice is there doesn't mean we continue to sin. And so he says that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin. And, he, and in verse 31 it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He says you do not want to face God on your own merit. And that's the gospel message, right? That it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank goodness for the work of Christ. But recall here verse 32 and we'll finish with these verses. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, some being publicly exposed, reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners to those who are so treated. He says, remember the things that you've gone through. Think about the hardships, the affliction. Think about the, the struggles and the sufferings. Recall the former days after you were enlightened. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, you were so focused on what you had in Christ that anything that happened here on earth, it didn't matter to you. That's how 
solid and secure your focus was after you had been enlightened. But what he, the people of, in, in, that he's writing to in the book of Hebrews, they had come a long way. They had come a long way. And they were, they were quite a ways removed from the day in which they were enlightened. And yes, at one time, their, their focus was so fastened on the future that the things in the present really didn't affect them. It didn't shake them. They, they weren't wavering. They were holding fast to their confessional folk. But they were so far removed from that that he says, you need to recall to mind those days because you have forgotten the mindset that you had in those days. Your mindset in those days was so built and founded upon the work of Christ that there was nothing that was going to bring you down or upset you or sink your ship. But he says in verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. He says, don't, don't just allow the things of life to beat you up and to tear you down and to little by little cause you to throw away your confidence. What confidence is he talking about? Not the confidence that, that there's something better yet to come. The confidence that we can draw near into the very presence of God. Don't allow the things of life to keep you out of God's presence. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great, there, which has great reward, he says. There is great reward. There is great reward found when we lay hold of the confidence that we can draw near into the presence of God based upon the work of Christ. And you can apply that reward to your life however you need it. If it's comfort, encouragement, uplifting, whatever it might be. There is great reward in the presence of God based upon the finished work of Christ. Verse 36, you have need of endurance so that by the second week of February, you won't give up. You won't go back on your word. So that when you have done the will of God, he says, you may receive what is promised. What is the will of God? We had it twice before in verse 7 and then again in verse 10. The will of God is that we are sanctified. That's why God sent the Lord Jesus. That's why he sent his spirit. That's why he gave us his word. It's the will of God that the people of God are transformed into the image of Christ. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he gives us this hope of yet a little while and the coming one will come, will not delay. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He reminds us there's coming a day when he will take us away. The coming one will come and will not delay. He says, but right now, he says, my righteous one will live by faith. And if you want to understand what that looks like, read the next chapter. What it means to live by faith. He says, we are not, in verse 39, he concludes, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what a confidence that we have based upon the work of Christ.